This is an Our Savior Evangelical Free Church podcast. To learn more, visit osefc.org. If you're in here, we keep going in the Gospel of John. So open your Bible to John chapter 1. John chapter 1. Now we started working through John's gospel for Advent, and what we're going to do is we're just going to keep going for at least two portions of this year. And this is an incredible narrative of Jesus' life. So at the outset of 2023, I'm just really excited to say that our plan is to spend the year with and following Jesus through John's telling of his life story. And and the timing of this is, is perfect. Uh, Many of us around the new year think about what we want the next year of our lives to look like, what kind of rhythms we want to have, what kind of habits we want to establish. So whether you have been a daily Bible reader or not previous to this, here's what I think you should commit to right now. Read a chapter of John every day to start the new year. It will not even take you an entire month if you just do one chapter a day to read this book. And you can do it any time during the day, but but I think this pattern is best. Read it early in the morning. It sets up your whole day. And when you read the Bible, you can do it lots of different ways. If you've done one of those Bible reading plans, maybe you're reading from four different places, maybe you're reading several chapters. When you read just one chapter a day, here's what you can do. You can read it slowly and you don't have to race through it. You can comprehend what's happening. Uh, When you read kind of deliberately, you will notice all these connections and you'll see in greater detail what John, the writer, is showing you. And then when you're doing this, if, if you're establishing this pattern, just ask this one question after you've read this pattern, after you've read the chapter. One question. Just ask, what is one thing this is teaching me about the greatness or goodness of God? Start your year this way. You will find, you will not find, let me say it like this, you will not find a better resolution for the year or a habit than resolving to meditate on the greatness and goodness of God every morning in 2023. So let's do that together. Just get up. Read one chapter, start with John, great timing for this, and ask what is one thing that this is trying to teach me about the greatness or goodness of God. You won't have a better habit in 2023. So we're going to be in John 1 this morning. Start at verse 19. Before we do that, let me just kind of introduce you to what John is trying to do here. Uh, the, the gospel of John as a whole is an unveiling of the glory of God as seen and, and found in Jesus Christ. That's the message of the whole book, that Jesus is the promised, long-awaited Savior. That's John's goal in writing, to say that Jesus is the long-awaited, promised Savior. And at the outset of the gospel, in chapter 1, that, that's laid out for us in two ways. The first thing we're told, very first thing in John, is we are told 
that there is an eternal word of God who's one of the three persons of the triune Godhead and that word of God has come in the flesh. That's the first thing John wants you to know is the eternal word of God has come in the flesh. He kind of spends verses one to 18 of chapter one doing that. And starting in verse 19 where where we pick it up, he's going to say that this word This incarnate word is the man, Jesus of Nazareth. And that man is the very son of God. So those are the two primary introductions that we get. There is an eternal word of God who has become flesh. And that word is the man, Jesus, known as Jesus of Nazareth, who is the very son of God. And it's important to understand this, that that John is introducing Jesus this way because we want to see how he's presenting this Christ, this Messiah, this promised one. And so John kind of takes two parallel tracks. He's going to kind of do this theologically and then he's going to do this sociologically. Uh, As he starts... He's making just these incredible claims about the word incarnate that are almost on a, that they are on a, a cosmic level. In the beginning, before time, before there was earth, before there was anything, there was the word. He said that's, that's the way he starts. In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God and the word was God. Huge, huge. In the, in the beginning, the word was with God. Huge beginning. Can't begin any more powerfully or prominently than that. It's amazing. But sometimes something even like that has such a way of feeling like it's so beyond anything that we comprehend that maybe it even seems inaccessible to us. So after he started that way, now in verse 19, John is going to kind of go what I'll call sociological. He's going to take what people can know and what they can understand and he's going to make Jesus as relatable as he can be. And what he does is he's, he's going to combine what Jewish people were, were already looking for with something that they could trust. So, so that's where a, a, another man named John, who's called the, the Baptist, comes in. All right, just so we're really clear, I know this is a little confusing. We've got two Johns that we're dealing with right now. There's John who wrote the gospel. He was a disciple of Jesus. And then there's John who's called John the Baptist because he came baptizing. Two Johns. I'll try to keep them clear for you. Uh, John the Baptist is an ideal choice to introduce people to Jesus because John the Baptist was known and trusted by people because he had a seriousness to his faith. He made all kinds of life decisions that were different, unique his appearance, where he lived, what he ate, what he drank. He was completely sold out to be set apart for God's work and glory. And so he becomes a great person. And he, he kind of he had a, a following. He was known. He had, a, he had a bit of local fame because he was, frankly, he was quite different. And so he was known to people for a seriousness to his faith. And so John, the writer, 
says, let's look at what John the Baptist, who was known as a man sold out for God, said. What was he doing? People trusted him because they knew he was serious. So we're going to read a little bit, start working through this. What I want to do is I want, instead of just reading this all at once because it's a longer section, I want to read and then I want to talk and then I want to read and then I want to talk. So if this sounds choppy, that's not my hope, but I, I just want to kind of explain where we're going together. So let's go and let's look. We're just going to start with one verse kind of as introduction to this. So look in your Bible. If you didn't bring a Bible, there's a black hardback one in the rack in front of you. Uh, If you don't have a Bible, you like reading at home, just take that one home with you. So John 1, starting at verse 19, says this. And this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? Okay, so this is John the Baptist. This is the testimony of John. A testimony and a witness are really one and the same thing. So think of a courtroom. A judge calls a witness, and then the witness will swear what? That the testimony they're about to give is the truth. So a witness gives a testimony. We need witnesses to give testimonies because most of the time, not too many people were there. We weren't there. If you've, ever been, if you've ever been on a jury, I've been called for jury duty several times, never sat on a jury, but I've been in the courtroom proceeding. And you will know that when witnesses are called, it's often, the, the whole case is going to rest on the credibility of the witness, Right? The testimony that's given, that's what the jury, that's what the judge is really hearing is, is the testimony given reliable? Is it truthful? Can it be believed? That's the whole case rests on that. John now, the gospel writer, knows that the testimony of John the baptizer is not only credible, but it's weighty because of who John the Baptist was And he knows this testimony to be true. So of all the ways that he could introduce Jesus, he said, cosmically, he's with God and he is God. And now let's go to one who can tell us who this Jesus truly is. So to start, Jewish leaders, because John is odd. Remember, John's made his whole life about following uh, some very strict commands of God and some very strict interpretations of how to live for God. So Jewish leaders send some representatives to John, and John's proclaiming this message that God is about to do something big. And his whole message is prepare, get ready. God is going to do something huge. And what John is calling people to do in preparation is to repent of sin. So John is walking around saying, God's about to do something big. You need to repent and get ready. And then he's baptizing. That's why it's called John the Baptizer. Now, now here's a distinction. John is not baptizing as a symbol of new life. He's baptizing as a symbol of repentance. So he's baptizing people in the way that he's taking them into a river and he's, and he's putting them underwater. But he's not saying this is because you have new life. That doesn't come yet. Only Jesus can give you that. But he is saying as a symbol of your desire to be obedient to God and to recognize your sinfulness, I'm going to put you under this water as a symbol of cleanliness. 
people had been doing baptism a little bit before that, but John is now doing it kind of on a, a scale that has caught the attention of religious leaders. So he's proclaiming a message of repentance. He's proclaiming a, a, a message of, of the imminent work of God. And he's doing something kind of unique, gathering people for baptism. And so the question makes sense, like, who are you? Like, what, like why, do, why are you, who do you think you are to do what you are doing, to say what you are saying? And here's what he says. <clears throat> he confessed, verse 20. He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, <clears throat> I'm not the Christ. So John's answer now is going to come from two different directions. Firstly, he's going to tell him who he's not. Just, just so we're very clear, the Christ is the Messiah, the promised one. I'm not him. Let's just get that off the table. I don't want you to think that, I don't want you to have any idea of the wrong impression from the get-go. I'm not the Christ. So the first thing you need to know is that God will send one who's been promised who will undo the curse of sin and liberate his faithful people. That's not John the Baptist. But if he's not the Christ, there's still a lot of other options. And so verse 21, they ask him, well, what then? Are you Elijah? And now John's a little coy here. He just kind of says, he's just going to say like no three times in a row. He's, he's not going to come out. He's, eventually he will. But finally, but first he just says, they say, are you Elijah? And he says, I'm not. So they, they ask him if he's Elijah because Elijah was an Old Testament prophet who never died. And it was believed that toward the end of the, the present age, or when the Messiah did come, that Elijah would either return to earth in anticipation of that, or he would come with the Messiah. And so John answering no here is really interesting, because later Jesus is going to actually say that while John is not Elijah, it turns out he was doing what many scholars believed Elijah would do. So in effect, so if you're wondering, wait, 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 doesn't Jesus later say that he is Elijah? What Jesus really means is he's a kind of Elijah. But John actually didn't see it that way yet because he, he hadn't seen the full plan of God. He was just walking one step at a time like, like a lot of us are doing. Like all of us are doing, in fact. He doesn't see the full plan of God. He's just faithfully walking in obedience to what he knows God wants him to do then. He hasn't seen the whole plan. He does, John doesn't have this view of like, this is exactly how my life's gonna go. He's just being faithful. So he says here, no, I'm not Elijah. Jesus is later going to come and say, but he did what you thought Elijah would do. And so then they ask, okay, are you the prophet? Again, coy. He answers, no. Now the word prophet should be capitalized in your Bible. Look there and notice that. That's, that's, that's unique. Uh, these priests are not asking if Elijah is another in the line of prophets that, that God has used to, to speak to them and to prepare them. Again, um, John the Baptist didn't see himself that way. But that's what he's doing. He's, he's preparing people. So what they're asking, are you Elijah? Are you the prophet? What they're asking about now, is, is he a very specific prophet? 1,800 years before this, in his last address to the people, one of his last addresses to the people of Israel, before they're going to go into the promised land, their great leader, the greatest prophet in the history of their nation, Moses, said there would come 
after him one day and the people should look for a great prophet who would come to lead and to liberate the people. And Moses said, he will be greater than me. Now Moses was the greatest of God's servants. He was the greatest of God's leader. He was the greatest of God's prophets. But he says, there will come one who is far greater than me. You should look for him. And so for 1,800 years, the people have been looking for this capital P prophet. There's been a lot of little p prophets. They're looking for one great one. So they're asking John the Baptist, is that who you are? Are you the one that Moses said would come? Again, he says no. So now they're just frustrated. Verse 22, so they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to the people who sent us. What, what do you, just basically they're saying, just let's stop playing games. Tell us who you are. Verse 23, and he said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Okay. Out of everything these men expected to hear, this was like the last thing that they ever expected to hear. So what John is saying is, you have it all wrong. They've come to ask, what great man are you? Are you Elijah the great man? Are you the great prophet? What, fine, what great man are you? And he, he's saying, you, you just, you don't get it at all. I'm not great. They think he has to be great because of what he's doing, because of what he's saying. They think he has to be great. Now, it turns out not to be true. John was a great man. But if you want to be used by God, this is the posture you need to take and I need to take. If you want to be used by God, you've got to say, I'm nothing. He's everything. Christ is everything. I'm nothing. And so he says, I'm nobody. Go tell your boss. Your boss is, I'm nobody. What he's saying is, don't worry about who I am. Listen to what I'm saying. And then he picks up this line that Isaiah used to give hope to the people of Israel when they were at their lowest point. So in the history of God's people, it goes like this. After the Israelites were brought up out of slavery and, and, and they begin to learn through Moses, through getting the law, through God making a covenant with them, they begin to learn, at, at least in part, to trust God. And that leads to them being given the, the promised land where they come into this place that is good for them, that is safe for them, where the people can rest and flourish where they can govern themselves. It was a place of safety and plenty for them. But what happens very quickly is they get complacent and they get lazy and they get spiritually idolatrous. So they very quickly forget about the mighty works of God. They very quickly forget about the provision of God. And they look increasingly less distinct from other nations around them. They begin to worship false gods and to incorporate other beliefs, religious beliefs, into their cultural practices. Not that it's wrong to marry people from another nation, but they were told don't marry people who worship other gods. And they began to marry worship, people who worship other gods. So they began to confuse the one true God with all these false gods around them. 
And what God did because God is gracious and because he cares for them is he warned them. He begged them to turn back to him. He said, please don't do this thing. And so he said, prophets. And he sent people to, to do that. And he, he gave kings, but many were arrogant and foolish and they led the people further astray. And so after hundreds of years, literally hundreds of years of God begging them to turn back to him, he allowed them to be overtaken by neighboring nations. They were captured. Their, city, their, their capital city, Jerusalem, was destroyed. And then they were deported, taken into an exile away from their homeland. All throughout this, like I said, God was building up. He was sending prophets who was saying, please turn back. But they also, they were saying, please turn back. And they were pointing out the sin and the, the debauchery of the people. But all the prophets were also saying, when you are overtaken, when you are sent into exile, there will be still hope yet. So the prophetic messages are often a, a lot of difficult things about destruction, but there's always hope in there. Prophet after prophet, so the people, you're going to be judged for your idolatry. But when you are, God will preserve a faithful remnant for you, even in that. And when the time is right, he will bring you back to your homeland. He'll bring you back to your sacred city. He'll allow you to rebuild it. Jerusalem will be rebuilt. And that's the prophecy. That's the kind of prophecy that John the Baptist is picking up. So Isaiah's prophetic ministry took place before the fall of Jerusalem, before the exile, before the destruction. But he is already saying, so Isaiah is already saying, when you're at your lowest point, don't despair, don't completely give up. There will come a day, and this is what he said, there will come a day when God makes the road straight and the path clear, and you will be able to return to your homeland. You're going to be taken out of it. It's going to be devastating. But God will one day bring you back. Now, here's what the people of God struggled for for generations. They always attached God and his faithfulness and his love to the land. If they were at home in the promised land, if Jerusalem was theirs, they believed that God was with them. If they were away, they believed that God was distant. John the Baptist is picking up on what Isaiah is saying but he's helping the people to see what's always been true, even though they, for centuries, millennia, couldn't see it. He's saying that you don't, your homeland isn't where you find the faithfulness of God. The faithfulness of God is going to be found in what he is about to give you. So he's saying, in, he's, they're in the homeland. They have, he's in Israel while he's saying this. And he's saying, don't worry about getting back to here. Worry about what God is doing and what he's about to do. And his message is that one day soon, God will make straight the paths so you can return and worship. Now this is different for them because they're saying, what, what, we're already here. We've, he's already made the path straight. We're already in the homeland why do we need straight paths? Why do we need clear highways to this? So this isn't about roads through the woods. This isn't about paths through the desert. 
This is about being, John is saying, you need to be able to personally, intimately connect with God. And you can anytime. And it's not geographically based. It has nothing to do with this place that you live. It has nothing to do with this land that you live in. God is going to make a way. That's my message. That God is going to make a way so that you can know him and see him and come to him at any time, in any place, from any circumstance. God is making a new way to him. He's making the path straight. He's clearing the way to him. That's John the Baptist's message. And he's saying, don't worry about Elijah. Don't worry. Just This is the message. And they never expected to hear this. They never expected to hear that. If, if you think the ground is hard to travel to God, if you think it's long to get to him, if it seems so uphill to connect with him for you, here's what John is saying. He's saying the path to God is Jesus. It's not law. It's not your rugged obedience and God's disappointment when you fail. The path to God is Jesus. And John the Baptist is saying, it's now right in front of you. And brothers and sisters in Christ, it hasn't changed. It's only gotten clearer since John's message. Since John preached, we only have more access to God. We've only been given greater understanding of him. We only have had our vision clarified of who he is. He's saying once the people had to make a long journey back from exile to their homeland to be able to feel like they were in right relationship with God. Folks, the opposite is now true. There's a long journey. There was paths that needed to get straightened out. God has done that. God has made the long journey. That's, what, that, that's the message here is that when Christ came, when God came in the flesh, he made the journey. When Christ, was in, when Christ was born, when Jesus was born, he made the way straight. And so now through Jesus Christ, you can see God and you can know him and you can have life in him. God is not distant and standoffish. He's present and he welcomes you to come. That's what John's saying. And how do you do that? If God is near, and if God welcomes us to come, how? How do we go to him? Actually, John begins to, to tell us just in these verses. The, let, let's do this. There are, there are three things to believe here and just one thing to know. I'm going to go through these really quickly. Three things in order to see God, to know God, and to come, be welcomed by God in Jesus Christ. There's three things to believe for us. One thing to just know. So I'm going to do these. I'm going to go much quicker. Uh, verse 24. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, then why are you baptizing? If you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet. And John answered, I baptize with water. But among you stands one who you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. <clears throat> Again, John is saying, don't worry about who I am. Look at Jesus. 
Uh, let me just finish this out and then I'll tell you three things that John testifies to you and, and one thing we must do. Uh, verse 29. The next day, the next day, he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove,